Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 33, Desolation Row. Here comes the blind commissioner. They've got him in a trance. One hand's tied to the tightrope walker. The other's nailed in his pants. They need somewhere to go As Lady and I look out tonight From Desolation Road Well, Happy New Year, Chris, and Happy New Year to all the hagophiles out there. Can we call? <laughs> happy New Year, indeed. Uh, we thought we'd bring you a little uh, old anxiety Bob Dylan style there at the opening. Yes, uh, old Robbie Z. Hitting us with a truth bomb <laughs> and a good episode title at the same time. Uh, how's 2021 looking so far to you? Well, uh, if the song title uh, wasn't enough. Hey, you know, I was going to look, if nothing, Josh, you know, I want to put up a brave front. I was going to suggest that 2021 is already vastly uh, improved version of the 2020 product because uh, news coming out of Silicon Valley that the first uh, bona fide union of tech workers uh, within the Google universe uh, is now being uh, officially founded. So that's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a step forward. I, mean, I think we need stuff like that in the tech industry. Uh, Google's pretty, you know, you remember that Google used to, um, Google used to have a, a slogan. It was like, don't be... Don't be evil. Do you remember that? Yes. Don't be evil. And then they just kind of quietly (laughs) stopped using it and they removed it from all their, (laughs) which is uh, pretty telling. So maybe the union will will keep them from uh, being as evil as they become. (laughs) Yeah. And and so, well, okay. So I thought, there you go. Already we're, you know, uh, a step ahead of of the game from last year. But, you know, who, who are we kidding? Because as we record today, let the record show, it's a Tuesday afternoon um we are less than 24 hours from what appears to be the next iteration of a kind of slow moving coup d'etat in washington dc as the uh, election results presidential election results are due to be uh, certified tomorrow in congress usually uh, a mere formality really uh, in which the vice president, by tradition, presides over a kind of pro forma approval of the election results. Not something the Constitution even requires, by the way, but which you know has become part of the political protocol of the country, has now suddenly turned into what, uh, Josh, a kind of uh, maybe what cage match WrestleMania? I don't know. What, what's going to happen tomorrow? I have no idea. So this, I mean... So I don't know if you saw this. We may have a preview of this because um, in Pennsylvania, did you see this? The state Senate there is refusing to seat a Democratic uh, a representative who won his election. 
um, because it was it was a close election, and uh, the state supreme court, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, actually, uh, you know, gave a thumbs up, said it was a totally legit election. Every, all those were counted correctly, but the Republican majority in, in the Pennsylvania Congress was refusing refusing to seat him, and they basically staged a coup today on the floor of the uh, the uh, Pennsylvania Pennsylvania State House. They kicked the lieutenant governor out, and they they uh, read off all the names of all the people who won their elections and were being seated, except this one guy whose name was not read uh, and was basically told that he didn't actually legitimately win. So there's one, uh, you know, um, a district in Pennsylvania that's not represented right now because they're refusing to seat him. So is this a preview of where, where we're going? Well, I think I think it might be, unfortunately, a foreshadowing, you know, that uh, the late breaking news from the Hag News team. Thank you. Coming out of Pennsylvania. <laughs> Is that uh, what the Pennsylvania uh, Speaker of the House Benito Mussolini mm-hmm. uh, actually barred the door uh, to the uh, Pennsylvania Parliament or the Italian Parliament? Oh, I can't remember. I, this this is if if it weren't actually happening, we'd say it's it's some kind of satire or some kind of uh, maybe uh, what I don't know dystopian, you know, something maybe Stephen King. I've been watching The Stand. Recently, the Stephen King, uh, the the remake of the Stephen King um, uh, novel about a uh, global pandemic in which ninety nine percent of the human population, you know, disappears. A little uplift for you. Of other... Just to take <laughs> your mind a, off things. Just to take your mind yeah, off exa- things. Yeah, exactly. But what I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm trying to find out hard hard news truth uh, from the the likes of Stephen King novels <laughs> now because it seems to make just as much sense. You know, it's whatever's coming across the wire from Pennsylvania yeah. or Georgia, you know, uh, where the, uh, you know, the secretary of state in, in Georgia, who's a hardline Republican who back in the 2016 election, you know, that office was very likely involved in the uh, disenfranchisement of of black voters in Georgia, uh, denying uh, the, uh, you know, the governorship to uh, the black female candidate in Georgia that that now is suddenly what is it? He's the last great, last great hope of democracy or something. I guess Stacey Abrams. Yeah. Um, yeah. When yeah. Stacey Abrams just lost out by a hair, you know, to the, this guy, Brian Kemp in Georgia in 2016. And now he's the greatest uh, hero that America's ever had. We right. all, we all love Brian Kemp now. Right. Right. So that's why you go to Stephen King to find your, uh, you know, your, your, your hard news information, I guess. Right. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. You know, um, we, we call it a new year and we like to think of it that way, um, you know, because it, it, it helps what reset uh, folks, you know, uh, I guess emotionally, maybe, mm-hmm. um, you know, it allows you to, to kind of, uh, you know, clear out the bad debt, so to speak, yeah. you know, from the preceding year and, and start, uh, you know, at least in, in some basic way, you know, with a, with a fresh start. Uh, but uh, we uh, signed off that last episode, you recall, Josh, in, in December, signed off saying, uh, we'll let you know how the coup turned out, but it ain't <laughs> I over. I didn't remember that. Man, we are prescient. <laughs> Yogi Berra, that, the, you know, the, the, the quote-worthy, always quote-worthy Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. And it ain't over. And, and even though this episode is going to come out on the other side of that ordinarily boring, you know, pro forma uh, ceremonial uh, moment in, in Congress where the election gets affirmed. Um, I'm, I, I'm not sure that it'll be over even by the time the uh, episode premieres later this week or even maybe in the 
near future. Well, you know what I also I also learned recently that if this these new Senate elections are close enough, I think they're, if they're within one percent, then there's a super runoff that's in six months. <laughs> so we could be doing this forever. We could we could be uh, recording our next you know uh, I don't know what is that twenty episodes. Well, still <laughs> still without being solved. We like here at History Against the Grain, we call that job security. Folks. Yeah, there you go. So we'll have plenty to talk about, it seems, for the immediate future. But I think, you know, the and the idea of Desolation Row, you know, using the, the Dylan song, um, that's an eleven minute song, Josh. <laughs> it's you know, too long, off yeah. of uh, <laughs> well, and, and you know, Dylanophiles will argue about this for eternity. You know, what was Dylan's best album or whatever? But Highway sixty one revisited certainly. You know, it's usually in the conversation. But that that eleven minute plus song, it's hard to remember just how formulaic, you know, early pop music was. Right? Mm. Uh, you know, in the in the early sixties, uh, the the what two and a half minute you know, radio-friendly pop course, song. Course, yeah. You know, and here comes Mr. Zimmerman, you know, out of the, uh, you know, the great north to lay on um, popular culture in 11 minutes. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know if there's a chorus in it, is there? I mean, the bare semblance of a chorus or, you know, kind of stream of consciousness, uh, kind of beat poem, you know, edgy beat poem about the events of, of, of the early 60s. And this is even before America, you know, jets into uh, Vietnam uh, under uh, LBJ. I, you still had enough of a quagmire uh, politically in America, even before the depths of the Vietnam crisis, you know, to inspire this scathing critique, you know, of the American uh, political and economic establishment known as Desolation Row. And so I, I, we thought it was fitting, folks, to bring in this, this 11 and a half minute screed, you know, uh, done up Dylan style, uh, because it, it takes, to me, Josh, it takes that kind of imagination to capture, you know, what what's playing out here now uh in front of us the 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 political theater if you will of of america in in now early 2021 yeah and and we didn't luckily did not play all 11 and a half minutes of the song but uh just just play that and then good night folks thanks for listening um but uh yeah you know i think his best stuff and we don't maybe need to talk about dylan for the, the next hour but his best stuff is is political without being topical, I would say. And I think, you know, that's that's the song is definitely one of my favorite because it, it managed to be uh, full of, of outrage, full of anger, full of jokes, because it's funny at times as well, mm-hmm. uh, without mm-hmm. specifically referring to anything of that moment, right? That can that can make it seem dated or, or make it seem like it's any less relevant. Uh, what is it, 60 years later almost now? Um, mm-hmm. And, and that, to me, that was always Dylan at his best when he was able to uh, get across you know such powerful ideas without referencing a specific event because that's the best way to date your song when it's you know so topical that it has no meaning for anybody else at any other time and i know dylan always you know has always you know been very prickly about you know sort of questions you know about what does this mean and what does that mean and and i get that you know it's the artist's prerogative to be you know uh, mysterious and not have to explain your own jokes and you know that kind of thing but you know, the, the timelessness of great art, right? You know, so, you know, when he talks about the blind commissioner, I I thought of Mike Pence, you know, when, <laughs> mm-hmm. he, when he says the circus is in town, I, you know, 
pick your favorite circus. Is it a Trump rally? <laughs> is it the corporate media? I mean, you know, that all these characters, you know, which he so indelibly, you know, created for these 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 songs, they have as much, uh, I think, relevance and are as timely in helping us um, get our minds around this, this current state of affairs. Right. And, and, and I think that's, you know, so much of what at least for my part, that makes history so so incredible as well. It's that, that same thing. You can look at these things happening, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and 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 recognize that ultimately, while the, the context might be different, the people might be different, the characters might be different, it, in many ways we're dealing with the same types of issues of just living in human societies and, and attempting to make those societies as best as they can be. Um, and, yeah, so maybe art and history – uh, fit together in that way and that the best at, at their best what they do is speak to our current time whatever that time happens to be um, and, and retains that relevance and retains that that um, importance across generations yeah that's that's well said and and look this is history against the grain after all not just current events uh, we've tried to uh, connect to what we call the history outside our window uh, and so uh, of course, we take note of what's happening, you know, in, in real time as we make these episodes, we record them. But, uh, you know, we're going to draw a bigger picture. Sure. Uh, not just 50 years ago in the, in, the, in the music of the 60s or something with Bob Dylan. But you're going to do a bit later um, talking about France in the, you know, in the 19th century. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, some earlier antecedents from uh, American politics in the, you know, in the early republic. And hopefully, you know, create a kind of, um, you know, a, a kind of framework here to understand that this isn't just, you know, the, uh, you know, peculiar expression of a moment, although it's certainly they, you know, these moments always take on their own personality. Um, but that rather, as we've been saying, I think for a lot of episodes now, Josh, you know, we're talking about a 300, three, 400 year uh, historical epic that, you know, gets called, you know, modernity or the modern age mm -hmm. of history, you know, in which these systems that are that are created in the early modern era, you know, play out these dramas, you know, time and again uh, over the course of that three or 400 year uh, span so that we, you know, we take the bigger view. We see a more maybe global view of, of what's happening and, and not just be like, you know, you know, when you go camping and the, and the gnats are flying around your face and you find yourself waving your hands, trying to clear the gnats away from you, you know, that, that it's not just this immediate antagonism, you know, that has you so discombobulated, but, but that there's a larger, sort of set of issues that until and unless they 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 are you know squarely addressed what we we figure to be you know playing these dramas out on the reg yeah um it's that's a really good point and uh i i sent you something the other day um it was a quote by by eric foner the the esteemed american historian uh and this was i just saw this on, in on twitter but it was somebody who was in a class at uh, i think georgetown and Eric Foner uh, came in and just uh, talked to the class. And the, this, the student um, wrote down one thing from his talk, and it was Eric Foner saying, this history we were taught could not have produced the present we were living in. 
uh, and it's such an incredible statement of, of really what we've been saying, I think, for what, 33 episodes now. Uh, Foner, Foner's uh, uh, doing it longer than us, I guess, uh, was able to say it. It took us 33 episodes. It took him one sentence. But, um, exactly. But, but yeah, I mean, it, the history that, that so many of us were, were taught um, was a history that was not meant to explain the world as it was, right? It was meant to mm-hmm. bewilder in many ways. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, so if, if anything, as historians, as thinkers, as, as you know, active citizens, I guess, it's really important for us to understand that the, the kind of long history that's led up to this point, um, the precedents that have led up to this point, um, the mistakes that have led up to this point, uh, the heroes who have led up to this point, um, but but not to do so through this kind of lens of, of nationalism, not to do so through this lens of trying to bewilder and, and promote, uh, you know, some kind of nationalist version of, of the story, but to, to look at things truthfully and to see where we are and why we're here, um, not just as a, as a moment in time, but as a, a part of a long process of history that's been playing out, as you said, over this past, you know, whatever hundred years of, of modernity and beyond. Well, yeah. 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 No. I, and I think, look, I mean, you know, it's again, it's job security for us to make the case that well, you know, we need to take the long view of this. We're historians. But, and I would even say it's more, even more specific than mm-hmm. that. It's it's that, and I know something that's bothered both of us in recent days as we've watched the response to, you know, the various machinations by Donald Trump to uh, deny the legitimacy of the uh, presidential election and to, uh, you know, deny the result in particular of the election, uh, is that the response to... Trump's machinations uh, by those who would consider themselves, I guess, in the vanguard of what some kind of, you know, maybe liberal or progressive opposition uh, to, to, you know, the sooner we get on with the regular business of America, the better this will all amount to nothing kind of thing. But I think um, what you and I want to say today in today's episode is is what really mm-hmm. You know the longer view of this affords us you know and as we've we've set up our episodes talking about the way systems come to be designed a system of of you know liberal representative democracy uh, you know or a system of, of, of liberal capitalism uh that these systems contain inherent structural flaws that are nevertheless designed into these systems in order to secure for, you know, various interested parties, you know, uh, whether it be monetary compensation or political return or what have you. Uh, And that it's not honest, ultimately, to say, well, look, this is just so much political theater, it'll, it'll pass. Because as we've seen, you know, again and again throughout the historical epic, you know, of the last three to four hundred years, that that often these these fissures, you know, these fault lines actually do give way to what, uh, you know, political um, transformation, you know, from from liberal democracy to fascism or to autocracy you know, or to some, you know, interregnum of militarism or, or something else. And that it's really a kind of, uh, what, a hubris, I guess, maybe we'd say, to think that 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 what we're watching now isn't potentially capable of. No, ab- absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a, you know, we want to be aware of, of, 
mm-hmm. the long term, right? Um, this system has stayed in place, more or less, I guess. I, there was a little civil war in, in the way as well, but more or less stayed, stayed in place. It's the, our, you know, the longest running constitutional system in the world right now, right? Um, but that doesn't mean it can't fall right. apart. Uh, it doesn't mean that because it hasn't happened before that it won't happen in the future. And, and I think it's, it's pretty naive to, to assume that um, this can't work because the institutions are in place to keep it from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk more about that as we go on. But, but no, this is a very dangerous situation. And, and whether or not you think this is likely or unlikely doesn't really reduce the danger all that much. Um, we'll, we'll talk about coups as, as we go on. But um, we're, we're in a dangerous moment here. And, you know, what, by the time people are listening to this episode, I know some of the stuff will have played out a little bit. But I think it's important to understand that this is not a, a crisis of this moment. It's a crisis that, um, you know, has a history, certainly that goes back into the deeper past of, of this country and one that um, is going to continue to play out over the next you know generation or generations. Because once you've introduced something into this system, once you've introduced... Um, you know, new potentials, you know, whether it's the Pennsylvania Senate refusing to seat a guy who won an election or whether it's, you know, whatever Trump's doing now, you can't just easily get rid of them, even if they fail at that moment. So um, I think it's it's really important for us to 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 understand the moment, the history, but also where this is going and potentially could go in the future. Yeah. And keep in mind, and I hate just casting myself in the role of the doomsayer, you know, but the fact is this system our system uh, here in the United States has broken down before. And the last time that it broke yeah. down, utterly broke down, uh, it, it took nearly 700,000 lives uh, to resolve. Uh, in other words, I, I know we've done a lot to romanticize the Civil War and to make it a kind of popular, you know, participatory uh, reunion memory, you know, with battlefield reenactments and you know, Ken Burns's, you know, soft, hued, you know, <laughs> golden voiced uh, Shelby foot narration and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but that was, a, you know, a, was a, a vicious bloodletting, you know, that that I think, you know, when when viewed in a, in a clearer light, it ought to remind us just how susceptible even, you know, our particular version of the system uh, can be. And so again, I, you know, not, <laughs> Hey, did you hear the Google employees are unionizing? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Things are looking up. Yeah. You know, not, not again, not, not just to, you know, to forecast doom, you know, because, uh, you know, what, what ultimately I think we are, Josh, are also that we, you know, we we're fairly solid optimists, you know, we're, we're skeptical, <laughs> but we're fairly solid mm-hmm. optimists as we've said before, but we understand that what it ultimately takes you know, is to at the very least, and we've said this also before, is to call things by their true name. So what we want to do in the next segment here is to talk about why we should be calling what's happening now, the history outside our window in the United States politically, why we should be calling it uh, a coup, a coup d'etat, uh, not, mm. not something else, not something lesser, uh, but to call it what we think it is. You need not be take the Senate and the White House, and they're not taking this White House, we're going to fight like hell, I'll tell you right now. 
Well, I apologize for having to play that clip. <laughs> I, I, I told this to you, Chris, but I'm just allergic to hearing his voice. I will try to avoid it at whatever cost. You told me you listened to the uh, the Georgia tape, uh, and I said, no, <laughs> I have not listened to it. You told me to listen to it, and I still have not listened to it, because I, I, I think I break out in hives when I hear him talk for, for more than five seconds. But, well, when uh, I, Josh, when I said Georgia tape, I meant yeah. Ray Charles singing Georgia. Oh, yeah. I'm well, sorry. I, okay. I, been I, can, I can handle that. that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I tell you, it, it, you can't be too uh, too sensitive if you're going to be in our line of work, buddy, right? You know, because most of what we've spent our time looking at is stuff that, as as the man said, is revolting. <laughs> yeah. Looking at, not not hearing. That's the, that's the difference. I can, I can look at anything, but... You must be one of those auditory learners, huh? Just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, there have been, you know, of course, we could do a Hall of Fame, a Demagogue's Hall of Fame, you know, in American history. We were talking earlier about the Kingfisher, Huey, Huey Long, Long. Uh, of Louisiana. You know, uh, there's, there's no shortage. You know, Ross Perot, even from our time in the early 90s, you know, was great mm. on the stump with his folksy you know, come on and is, you know, Texarkana twang and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, even, even a Bill Clinton, you know, wasn't bad at shining on the electorate, you know, in his, in his own sort of countrified yeah. uh, way. But here, you know, for the first time from Queens, direct to you, <laughs> state of Georgia, <laughs> you know, yeah, the scion of the slumlord, you know, uh, from Queens. You know, playing the pop, the billionaire populist, you know, but but telling the crowd of mega hat wearing, you know, uh, cheering, adoring uh, fans uh, uh, as if, you know, scripted from reality TV itself, you know, that uh, they, they're not going to let the White House be taken back. And so I think what we want to say about that is not just, to, you know, to make some wisecrack, you know, not not to bring on some. uh Alec Baldwin to do some send up of the Donald, because as I was telling you the other day, man, I think this guy's beyond parody in some ways. And yeah, sure. Yeah, you, you can laugh. But, you know, uh, we both read an article recently that I think makes a lot of sense why we shouldn't just be laughing at this, huh? Yeah, this is a piece from from the Atlantic uh, by a political scientist named uh, Zainab Tufekci. Uh, she teaches at UNC, University of North Carolina. Um, and she grew up in, in Turkey experiencing lots and lots of coups. And so the article is titled, This Must Be Your First, uh, and is based on a line her mother said to a young uh, employee at an airport when there clearly was a coup going on. And the, the employee tried to tell her, no, 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 everything's fine. And she said to her, this must be your first, uh, <laughs> with, the, with the idea that she had lived through enough coups, the mother had, to know a coup when she saw one. Um, and so what uh, Tufekci is, is, is writing about is this, this debate that's been happening about what we call what's happening right now. And, and there's certainly been a lot of people who have uh, tried to stay away from, from calling it a coup, uh, who have you know, ridiculed the incompetence of, of what's happening, who have pointed out uh, how little chance it has of success. And what she is warning us is none of that matters, um, that calling things by their name, as we've been trying to tell, tell you across our episodes, is very, very important. Um, and so, you know, just to kind of get into her piece a little bit, first of all, she defines the term. She said, in political science, the term coup refers to the illegitimate overthrow of a sitting government, usually through violence or the threat of violence. The technical term for attempting to stay in power illegitimately, 
such as after losing an election, is self-coup or auto-coup, sometimes autogolpe, which is a Spanish term. And the fact that Spanish created a term for this, or I'm sorry, uh, in Latin America, they created a term for this is suggestive of the, of the, the prevalence of those autogolpes in the history of, of Latin American politics. Um, so it's, it's a really important piece that I think warns us uh, as Americans who have not been through the coups that she herself or her mother have been through to take this seriously and to call it by its name, even if the, even if the name is not quite precise enough, um, even if you know, the formal definition of coup doesn't totally describe perfectly uh, what is happening right now, uh, it is still very important to recognize what's happening as coup-like at the very least um, and, and, and to not just ridicule it, not just point at how little chance it has of success but to take it very, very seriously. Yeah, and I'm persuaded, uh, uh, furthermore, by her point that, you know, if, if nothing else, acting or, or, you know, reacting to what Trump is doing uh, in such a way as to think that that indeed is, is a coup uh, is the best way to ensure that it won't be. In other words, re- responding yeah. accordingly will do more to stopping this whatever else you would want to call it, if not a coup, I, you know, would would stop it in its tracks. But by continually minimizing it or sort of shrugging, you know, or dismissing or, or uh, otherwise, you know, speaking past it, uh, in effect, allows that kind of um, that groundswell you know, the, the clear, clearly Trump has. I mean, let, let's not forget, you know, as you go back to the election, what he, he pulled, what, about 72 million votes in a losing yeah. cause, uh, that there is a groundswell of support and, and not just in the, you know, sort of, um, you know, soundbite friendly, you know, a hanger of, a, of, you know, of a Georgia airfield where he's meeting, you know, voters uh, ostensibly to talk about why they should support the Republican Senate candidates in Georgia, but really the whole entire time talking about, you know, why this um, election cannot stand, basically, why, you know, it can't go forward mm-hmm. with the inauguration of uh, Joe Biden, in effect, uh, as the next president. And so calling it a coup then for uh, Tufetsky is the best way of dealing with it on its own term. Yeah, and, and her point is is really important. Um, you know, she, she makes the case that we don't have the precise terminology to maybe describe what's happening right now. Um, and she talks about how in, in, in Turkey, there actually is multiple different words for, for coup to get across the, uh, we'll just say the breadth of different attempts that have been, been made uh, and successes. Um, and the fact that there's not a perfect term in the United States or in English to describe what's happening here doesn't mean we shouldn't call it a coup. It means we should worry about this becoming common enough that we have to come up with words <laughs> to, to talk about these things more precisely. Um, and you know, it's, 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 you know, what we were saying a, a, a bit ago that, um, once this stuff is invited in, once it's out there, it doesn't necessarily go away. There's, there's a long enough history of, of coups across, you know, at least the modern, modern times where we've seen failed coups pre- uh, proceed successful coups within, you know, years or even decades in some cases. Um, and so the failure, if this ultimately ends up as a failure, does not mean that it won't ultimately have success in, at some future date. Trump is not going away, by the way. Whatever happens in the next couple of weeks, uh, he will continue to have a voice in, in American politics. And 
so we need to remain vigilant, certainly. Yeah, and I think even uh, if you as exactly, if you want to argue that the efforts of you know these these sort of Trump coattail uh, folks, you know the, the the acolytes, you know who have found their new political home in the world of Trump in the Senate, you know people like uh, Tom Cotton of Arkansas or. Or this guy Josh Hawley uh, from Missouri, he's the youngest member of the Senate, uh, 41. He's leading the uh, what figures to be uh, some form of what I guess protest uh, in the political theater of, of Washington during the um, uh, the certifying of the election uh, in, in you know on Capitol Hill. That that these guys are laying pretty clearly laying you know the the ground for their own you know political ambitions you know, uh, four years from now. Uh, so whether, whether or not it's, you know, literally Donald Trump, you know, who manages to hang around and, you know, and, and keep the pot stirring for the next four years or any of his acolytes or converts or those who are riding his coattails, you know, the, the model is, is pretty, has been pretty successfully established, you know, and it just remains to be seen whether or not, you know, these people have the, the kind of charisma, I guess you would say, or the you know the the, the personal effect, you know that, that a guy like Trump has shown, and, and others in American history have been able to show, you know, uh, to connect in some basic way with a constituency, uh, with a base, as it were, to motivate. They always say, you know, to, to motivate the base, right? Uh, that that this model is is well established, and nothing succeeds in politics like success, and so, yeah. Um, my point being, it doesn't have to happen right now, and and for us to say, well, the the coup failed, or it was never coup for for it to be ultimately successful uh, two years down the road, four years down. In other words, this is this is a fight that we figure uh, must continually be fought, <laughs> right? From now yeah. on, right? Yeah, something we didn't think we we had to worry about now becomes something we have to worry about, and I, I think you know part of part of the. Um, the argument you're seeing from from a lot of people is that yes, this is maybe dangerous, but it's not going to succeed, right? That we don't need it. It, it can't succeed. Um, and and one of the reasons I think people are, are saying that is because of their faith in in American institutions. Um, but um, in this piece that we're we're talking about, she makes the a, a really important point, which is that our institutions do not operate via magic. They do not gain their power from names, buildings, desks, or even rules. Institutions rely on people collectively agreeing to act in a certain way. And, you know, this is part of, of this problem of kind of norm shattering that we've seen. And I, I'm not just going to say, you know, during the Trump years, I think this is something we've seen over the last few decades of, of American politics going back, um, I don't know, as far as Newt Gingrich, at least maybe, but probably further than that as well, where where these just basic assumptions we made about the way our politics operate have slowly begun to come up uh, to, to, to come apart. And, and Trump has been even more we'll say forceful or less apologetic about eroding those norms. Um, but once those norms are gone, institutions themselves are not going to protect us. Um, once we don't have these, you know, agreed upon ways of performing these political, uh, you know, performing politics, we'll say, um, it's really hard to go back and, unless you're going to create new norms. And that is exceedingly hard to do. Oh, man. Yeah. And I mean, look, nothing can be maybe more predictable than you know reverting to the hitler analogy right and i you know i'm in the first mm -hmm, say that right. you know 
after a while, you know, you, you call the, the guy who parked in front of you at the grocery store and nods. You know, in other words, right. it, it becomes so loosely uh, applied as to lose whatever meaning. But, you know, in, in a more serious sort of understanding, then one of the things that's really, you know, sort of struck me about, about Trump's uh, term has been the kind of condescension shown to him by, you know, those in... Um, the blogosphere, the media, you know, um, political uh, commentariat, you know, as they're sometimes called, you know, kind of, you know, sniffing their noses and, oh, you know, this is the guy from The Apprentice or this is the short-fingered Vulgarian, you know. But uh, the thing that always mm -hmm. impressed me, you know, about the about the, the rise of the, the National Socialists, you know, uh, in Germany, particularly the critical moment in the early 30s, you know, where they're, where they're gaining power, because it's not true that Hitler was elected, right? To to uh, he was appointed to be chancellor, but he was appointed by, uh, you know, the old line Prussian elites, you know, Hindenburg and 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 these these uh, self styled you know Prussian military elites who saw Hitler as being you know essentially a rabble rouser from the streets, right? You know, a guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, failed art student who you know was what a corporal in the German army in World yeah. War One, you know, and and there was always this sort of condescension, you know, toward Hitler that oh well, listen, he's got a public uh, audience, but you know, you know, you know, substitute in, yeah, you know, well, yeah, he had a reality TV show or something, you know, mm -hmm. but we can control him, you know, we can keep him under under thumb or something, and uh, and it's that that part of it that always is, has bothered me a little bit, you know, because while he's, you know, just as Hitler himself was, you know, eminently, you know, uh, what, uh, lampoonable or something, you know, because they're, they're outlandish character types, you know, uh, the narcissism alone, you know, lends itself to no end of, um, you know, of lampooning. But as, as she says in the article, you know, uh, ignoring, uh, let's say this all goes away. Let, let's say, you know, that as it's supposed to, you know, Biden takes uh, takes office, et cetera. This, you know, all the, the hot air blows out of this thing. She says, ignoring a near catastrophe <laughs> that was averted by the buffoonish, half-hearted effort of its would-be perpetrator invites a real catastrophe brought on by someone more competent and ambitious, you know? And, and, mm -hmm. and that really struck me because... You know, e even if it turns out that Trump can't pull it off, you know, that, that that all the condescenders, you know, were somehow right or whatever, nobody should be too um, too self-satisfied, I guess, you know, because as as you suggested and as she writes in the article, you know, the, 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 in effect, the model has been set, the tracks have been laid, and and a coup sometimes can be successful, you know, like the aftershocks of an earthquake or something you know, um, down the road. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we can, we can end this little segment here with a, a quote from her as well, because she really sums this up so well. She says, if the Republican party itself, if the Republican party itself entrenching minority rule on many levels won't stand up to Trump's attempt to steal an election through lying and, and intimidation with the fury, the situation demands, if the democratic party's leadership remains solely focused on preparing for the presidency of Joe Biden, rather than talking openly about what's happening, and if ordinary citizens feel bewildered and disempowered, we may settle the terminological debate about you know, whether this is a coup or not, by the way, in the worst possible way, by accruing enough experience with illegitimate power grabs to evolve a more fine-grained vocabulary. 
Um, and you know, so this is this is a moment. She she says alarmism is not uh, is problematic when it's sensationalist. Alarmism is essential when conditions make it appropriate. And so uh, I've, I've been convinced by that piece that it is it is appropriate right now to be an alarmist. It is appropriate right now to to feel like we're in a crisis, and it's inappropriate to say. Um, you know, we don't need to worry because the institutions will 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 uh, fix this. It's inappropriate for those who um, you know kind of laugh at those who are being alarmists and say, "Well, see, it's not going to work out, so you were wrong to be to be scared in the first place." Um, this is this is a, a a moment we're on the razor's edge here, uh, where things can go in different directions, and um, you know, I, I I think we need to continue to be vigilant um, and and not write off this as more buffoonery because. As buffoonish as he is, um, he's also shown himself to be a remarkably successful communicator of horrific ideas um, to 72 million people all across this country. So um, it is it is definitely worth being. Yeah, thanks for saying that, Josh. And I mean, I think that's really the point that we want to drive home today here, you know, is that uh, amidst all the. We'll call it buffoonery and counter buffoonery, you know, uh, amidst <laughs> all the snark and condescension, you know, maybe the complacency of an opposition at times, or even maybe just the grandstanding, you know, of, of an opposition who would rather make a political capital in a soundbite or something than to really confront, you know, what's what's happening. I, I keep coming back to a quote from a, a guy who I'm always sort of forced to, to kind of like, despite myself, from the 19th century, uh, a historian and writer and scion of a famous American political family, uh, Henry Adams. And the reason why I always end up kind of liking Henry Adams uh, is because anybody who's ultimately just that um, sort of cynical <laughs> has, a, has a certain... <laughs> Because I, you know, we've talked about this before. I don't like to think of ourselves that way. We're not cynics. I think we do yeah. have a kind of optimism, but we understand. You know, you you have to engage. You have to be vigilant. Uh, but what Henry Adams said, uh, the line I, I came back to, I think I sent it to. He said, "I expected the worst, and it was worse than I expected." <laughs> <laughs> so with that. Uh, we're going to go into the next segment here where uh, you, Josh, you're going to talk about a famous episode from the 19th century that uh, in some ways has some kind of interesting parallels to what we're seeing now and may offer us some, uh, you know, some some further uh, food for thought. So speaking of, of buffoons, uh, and there's a long line. You know, you mentioned you mentioned uh, Hitler being kind of described as a buffoon as he's, uh, you know, beginning his rise. I think Mussolini was described in similar terms, and more recently, I think Ronald Reagan was was often thought of as a buffoon, even as he rose to the pinnacles of American power. Um, uh, George W. Bush, right? Well, I mean, basically the entire Republican Party <laughs> for the last was that now forty years. Mm-hmm. Um, has been written off as as a group of buffoons, and yet they keep winning these these presidential elections. Um, but this this story goes back further, and I, I think the 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 buffoon of the nineteenth century, the guy who who kind of almost begins this this whole uh, uh, story of of you know buffoons rising to the, the heights of power, not through simple uh, you know uh, 
dynastic inheritance, although in some ways that does happen as well, but through uh, his ability to appeal to people in a way people others did not expect is uh, the eventual prince president of France and eventually emperor of France, Louis Napoleon. And so I want to talk a little bit about Louis Napoleon and then uh, his, his actions during the revolution of 1948 in France. So Charles Louis Napoleon uh, Bonaparte is the, uh, the nephew of the famous Napoleon, Napoleon I. And he is the, uh, the son of Napoleon's youngest brother, or at least the youngest brother who was politically active. His father had once been the king of the Netherlands. He had been appointed to that position by Napoleon um, and actually was a popular king despite being appointed and despite being French. So Louis Napoleon was, was his uh, second son. And um, after uh, Napoleon's empire fell apart, he and his mother ended up in exile in Italy. They spent some time in, in Rome where he and his older brother are very politically active. Um, they joined the Carbonari. Um, if you don't know the Carbonari, they are kind of a revolutionary organization in Italy in the 19th century. Uh, they have branches in other parts of Europe as well. And they, they're generally kind of liberal nationalists. Um, the Carbonari in particular are interested in uniting Italy, uh, not necessarily under monarchical rule, but under a Republican system. Um, and uh, so, you know, right there, we get a sense of his political leanings, um, his political engagement. And um, he would then spend uh, a lot of his youth in Italy. Uh, his family travels back to France for a time. They are in exile in Switzerland. And as this time goes on, he becomes more politically ambitious. Um, and in France throughout this time, after 1815, after the, the Napoleonic Empire had come to an end, um, there was uh, you know, a, a, a return of the, of the Bourbons to the throne a re restoration of the Bourbons, but there continued to be from 1815, a very dedicated group of Bonapartists. Uh, these were, were men and women who had either served under Napoleon the first, uh, had been on his, his, uh, in, in his officer corps, um, or simply were, were regular people who looked back to the Napoleonic empire as a time of French national greatness or a time in which, uh, you know, a great man was in charge who got things done and, and fixed the problems of the country. Uh, there was many reasons for people to um, to look back to that period and idealize it. And so what Louis Napoleon uh, came to recognize is that uh, his name was important, that that name could be the source of power. And so his ambitions would continue to grow across those early decades of, of the 19th century. Um, he would attempt on two occasions uh, coups in France. Um, and so he would cross the border once from Switzerland, once from uh, across the channel from England. Uh, and his, his assumption was simply by announcing who he was, by saying he was a Bonaparte, uh, the army would join him and he would lead them to victory against the restoration monarchy in, in France and, and restore the Bonapartists to, uh, to the throne and to power. Both of these attempts were failures and uh, not even particularly uh, you know, close in, in, that, in that way. Uh, they failed almost immediately. Um, in the first, the first instance when he crossed from, from Switzerland, uh, he convinced one officer in the French border uh, patrol to, to join him. The general, however, was not, uh, was not convinced, and uh, the uh, insurrection was put down very quickly, and Napoleon, Louis Napoleon had to flee back to Switzerland. In the second one, he uh, sailed across the English Channel with a very small force and immediately <laughs> was arrested, basically, and put in prison 
for life this time. Uh, the first time he was able to escape, the second time he was put in prison for life. And so, you know, all this does kind of fit into this this idea of a of a of a buffoon. And certainly, he was uh, he was mocked in 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 popular newspapers and cartoons uh, by by establishment political figures as his buffoonish figure. But there, there's kind of more to a story than just these failed coups. Um, he was a um, very active writer and reader. Uh, while in London, he spent a lot of his time in um, in the British Library, uh, reading and researching. He wrote, I think, five books over the course of his life, uh, with his most popular book uh, being titled The Elimination of Poverty, um, in which he laid out this plan for how to eliminate poverty, how to provide rights to workers. Uh, he was a big proponent of universal suffrage. And so to, to simply cast him as uh, somebody who held the Bonapartist name, uh, who uh, had ambition, and to use that name is is probably not fair to the actual figure who, you know, uh, served in the military. As I said, joined the Carbonari. Um, his track record, in many ways, was we'll just say was much more impressive impressive than our current presidents. Um, in that he actually, you know, although he had a name he could lean on, he built stuff for himself. He uh, educated himself. He wrote. He was curious. He saw the problems of society. He tried to respond to those 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 problems. Um, and, uh, eventually he's able to escape from prison. Um, he goes back to England and it's in 19, I'm sorry, 1848 when, uh, the 1848 revolution began that Napoleon began to cast his eyes back to France. This time he was going to be a little more careful. Uh, he wrote to the, the new French government, uh, asking them if it was okay if he, if he came back, they were a little suspicious of him. He tried to promise that he would, was gonna, not going to be up to anything bad. He promised he would stay quiet. Um, and eventually he was allowed to return to, uh, to France. And eventually he was able to run for election. All right? Not for the presidency, but simply to serve in, uh, in the, I think it was the Chamber of Deputies, was what they were calling the representative body at that point. Um, he won uh, with uh, you know, a, a huge share of the vote and took up his position within the Chamber of Deputies. Um, now, part of the reason I think he was sometimes referred to as a buffoon is because physically he was pretty funny looking. He had funny facial hair. He was, unlike his his uncle, who was famously referred to as short, uh, Louis Napoleon was literally short. I think he was five foot four. Uh, there is a story of when he, he got up in the Chamber of Deputies to try to give a speech and his head barely <laughs> showed up over the podium. Um, he was not a good speaker. And uh, it didn't help that they couldn't even see his face as he was talking. So um, I think that that kind of the phys- his his uh, physical appearance also uh, contributed to the way he was um, he he was seen. And so for a lot of the establishment figures that were now emerging in this post-revolutionary period, Napoleon was a figure um, uh, who could be talked about derisively, who could be mocked, who could be described as a buffoon. Um, but for the people of France. There was nothing buffoonish about him for at least large numbers of people. When um, it came time to establish a new constitution, and when that constitution established for the first time in France, in French history, the office of the president, uh, Louis Napoleon ran for that office. Um, He was up against uh, three competitors uh, from across the political spectrum. Um, There were uh, kind of uh, royalists who wanted to restore the monarchy to France. There were uh, kind of uh, leftists. There was hard leftists. And there was Napoleon who was able to style himself as this kind of middle ground, uh, not a royalist, not a leftist, but one who would seek to solve the problems of the people 
and one who would seek to establish order. Um, people assumed the election was going to be close, but when the votes were tallied, he won uh, with a resounding uh, number of votes. I think that the numbers were he won like 7 million votes. There, there was some like 9, nine million uh, voters in France at that time. He won 7 million plus votes and his competitors won 700,000. His closest competitor won 700,000 or something like that. So just a complete landslide. And um, he was uh, put in office as the first president of France. And uh, from from that point on, what we kind of see is, is something we're going to see in later periods. This idea that this was uh, because of this idea of who he was, he could be, uh, according to the uh, French politician of the era, Adolphe Thiers, one of the leading figures of kind of French liberalism in previous periods. Uh, at that point, 1848, seen as more of a conservative figure. Adolphe Thiers felt that Napoleon could be led by the nose. Um, he could be, uh, you know, kept in check. He could be controlled. And in that way, he would simply serve the interest of the prevailing power structure. Napoleon himself, Louis Napoleon, now known as Napoleon III, by the way, or eventually known as Napoleon III, uh, was not willing to be controlled. According to the French Constitution, you could only serve one term in office uh, as president. And as his term began to come to an end, he began to work to change that. Um, he tried to get them to change the Constitution. Um, and although his side got a majority, it needed a two-thirds majority to change the Constitution. And so he was denied there. Um, and so what he did is he took it to the people. He did a tour of the country. He rallied support uh, in these huge public demonstrations. Does this sound familiar yet? Oh, boy. Everything but the orange uh, <laughs> orange comb over I'm seeing here. Yeah. Yeah. Tr Trump is very tall. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. the one, one big difference I can see. He didn't write as many books. He only ghost wrote one book <laughs> or had one book ghost, ghost written for him. Um, and so eventually he was able to get enough support from the people that he was able to convince military figures to support his cause as well. And so uh, one of the, uh, the officers in the, the French National Guard agreed to support him. He got support from other officers throughout the country. And in uh, 1851 staged, my new favorite word, an auto golpe, uh, a self-coup, which installed him in, in a second term as president. Uh, once he was in office, he had the Constitution changed to allow the president to serve 10-year uh, terms. And they could serve as many 10-year terms as they wanted. And then within a year, by 1852, he had kind of put aside all that uh, institutional, constitutional ideas and simply had himself anointed the new emperor. And so by 1852, Louis Napoleon, little Louis Napoleon, the buffoon, the joke, uh, the failed coup maker, uh, was now the emperor of France. And he would continue to serve in that position right up until 1870 when another revolution would eventually um, overthrow him. So it, it's it's an interesting story, and it, it does also suggest the ease with which this can happen. Now, he did work very hard for this. He went through a lot of failures. He was embarrassed on multiple occasions. Um, but once in power, the ease through which he could, could remain in power was stunning for all those who bore witness to it. When I say all, though, I should make one big caveat, because one person was not very surprised by this, and that is our old buddy Karl Marx, uh, Karl Marx was, uh, was in Europe, I'm sorry, was on the continent still in 1848. This is before he had left for, uh, for England. It was actually as a result of the 1848 revolutions, uh, as they struck, uh, throughout Germany that he was forced to flee and became an exile. Um, and he would later write about this period and specifically 
write about France because France was the epicenter of the 1848 revolutions, the place where this new desire for liberty, desire for liberal government, desire for republicanism or democracy or socialism um, really uh, broke out first and then spread to the rest of the continent. And so for, for uh, socialists like Marx, for leftists like, like Marx, France was the place they looked to with the greatest interest, um, the place that seemed to have the greatest potential for true revolution in which the proletariat would seize power and, uh, and, and then kind of remake the world. Um, and so what, Fran uh, what Marx quickly realized, though, is that this was not going to happen. And he would write about this, I think, in, in probably his, his best single piece of writing, the 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon, he would write um, about France in, you know, from 1848, the ascension of Louis Napoleon, the failures of the left, the failures of the resistance to this. Um, and he would make a, a number of really important um, observations about power and the power structure and uh, about resistance and revolution. And included in this piece was probably one of his more famous quotes, the one I've quoted before on this podcast where he says, uh, you know, to, to paraphrase, history repeats itself first as tragedy and then as farce. Uh, and, you know, Louis Napoleon was really the subject of that famous quote. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, and contextualizing it in, in, in that way helps us also to get our minds around, uh, you know, what, what, what we're watching. And... I think, you know, in the piece, in the Atlantic, the uh, Kovnetsky piece, is that, um, you know, her, her, her point is, look, so, something can start off as farce and end as tragedy. In other words, that's, yeah, that's to kind point, of put yeah. traction on it, right, you know, is that, uh, yeah, what seems entirely buffoonish or comical, you know, uh, can by uh, degrees become you know, in increasingly uh, maybe, you know, uh, sort of desperate, you know, and, and through desperation, you know, turn to, you know, extra constitutional means, if you will, you know, to, to old power. I mean, the, the thing that is, has been so, uh, you know, striking just in, in the last couple of days, you know, Josh, for me and listening to, you know, the, the stuff coming out of Washington and, and, and Trump, in particular, you know, his 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 call to the Georgia Secretary of State, for example, which I listen, I told you, I listened to six minutes and some of it. Uh, I know you're a braver man than well, me. Well, you know, it's perverse. Uh, I think really is my, you know, he's driving driving by a car wreck. You know, I want to see, I want to look and see what's happened. You know, is that mm -hmm. no? You know, seriously, is that the, the, it's not so much an ideological component here. You know, I mean, it, we can, you can be snarky about Trump and. You know, uh, as we as we often are, you know, his his uh, his hyped up, you know, college transcripts, you know, um, you know, his his father greasing the skids for him at every turn, you know, kind of a bumbler, mm -hmm. you know, as you pointed out, at least Louis Napoleon you know, was, you know, was a, a legitimate author of, you know, <laughs> yeah. tracks that, two academics. That's what we really that's what we but, really. But, uh, but, you know, yeah, by, so right? it becomes all the fodder for this kind of. Um, you know, this snark or whatever. But but the thing that keeps coming through, you know, because Trump's not a, an ideological person, you know, the thing that keeps coming through is just this this determination to hold on to power, you know. And, yeah. um, and, and when you see that determination, whether it be from those outside of power, 
you know, intent upon seizing power or those who already have it, the autogolpe, as you say, you know, uh, um, trying to hang on to it, sort of the Louis Napoleon, you know, model of, uh, you know, he heck with, <laughs> you know, extending the term limits. Let's just, you know, sort of Caesar-like, you know, console for life, you know, yeah. is that, um, you know, that was the very thing that concerned the framers of our of our system, you know, those who sometimes I think, unfortunately, are called founding fathers, you know, as a kind of uh, mm -hmm. Old Testament, you know, pay on to, uh, you know, the prophets. Well, they, they weren't prophets. They were men of interest uh, who understood because they were men of interest, something certainly that Donald Trump would have no under, uh, problem understanding is that those who, who have interests want to increase their interests and want to preserve and protect and hold on to their interests. And because the framers mm -hmm. of the Constitution, you know, the, the, the very architects of our system understood that so well, you know, James Madison famously you know, said in one of the Federalist Papers, if men were angels, no government would be necessary, right? In other words, mm -hmm. if we could just trust each other to do the right thing all the time, you know, a handshake agreement or something, then it'd be a whole different ball game, you know, but we can't. And whether you, you know, you sort of grounded that like, you know, John Adams did in some kind of Calvinist, you know, Puritan, you know, dim, dim view of humanity or, or like a Donald Trump would simply as a hustler, you know, who, who understands that it's a zero sum game and anything your opponent gets, you lose and, you know, everything you get, yeah. they must lose that kind of thing. And I heard that in that conversation you know, that he had with that guy on the phone in, in Georgia, the Secretary of State, you know, in, in Georgia, where he kept applying that kind of logic of power, you know, that, that he said to him at one point, you know, you think that this is making you popular, but the people who like what you're doing kept calling him Brad, you know, kind of browbeating him with his own name. <laughs> you know, Brad, you think these people that like you for, for not playing ball with us, they're not, they're never going to vote for you, Brad, you know, so the people that like you are, are not the people that are going to vote. So for Trump, it all comes down to this kind of zero sum transactional, you know, embrace of, of power. And, uh, and so I think, you know, the, the, just as the Atlantic piece, you know, makes clear, and I think even Marx was making clear with that famous statement is that, yeah, it may all, it may all start out you know, with these seemingly, you know, what's uh, comic, uh, you know, comic, you know, dramas or something, you know, but they end up as tragedies. Uh, one of the things that I think is, is, is so important and, you know, this gets into the, this idea the institutions are going to save us. And, you know, I know we already, we already talked about this, but, you know, going back to Louis Napoleon, his, one of his big promises, one of the big appeals he made was that universal suffrage must be must be established and, and maintained. And certainly, you know, even after he was emperor, he allowed for universal suffrage. Everybody could vote. The problem was the thing they were voting for never had didn't have any power anymore. Right. They were still electing a chamber of deputies, but the chamber of deputies didn't actually have authority now that he was he was emperor. And, and it's just a reminder that, you know, in theory, we can have a system of, of rule here in which we continue to elect members of Congress, in which we continue to elect local representatives. We have a Senate. We still have these things, but none of it matters anymore because they've all been so hauled out by this process of, of norm breaking, of uh, you know the system of uh, not standing up to these kind of thing and allowing the form to maintain itself even as the actual structure has ceased to have, uh, have any meaning. Yeah, look... In this system of ours, this system, as we learn as, as school kids, you know, of checks and, and balances, 
You know, there's always this uh, presumption that there is something within the institutional uh, makeup, some mechanism, you know, that will serve as a break, you know, or a, a guard or a check, as we say, on, you know, unbridled power. But, you know, we know uh, that, uh, as historians sometimes say, you know, in the, in the history uh, of the post-World War II era in America, the, the rise of what, you know, they call the, the imperial presidency. That is, and, mm -hmm. and I suppose you could say it begins even earlier, you know, we like to do this uh, as historians, you know, in the, in the New Deal years or even in World War I with Wilson's, you know, use of federal power. I mean, because it's hard to remember that at one time the, the executive branch you know, wasn't wasn't really an activist branch of government. You know, the power really did right. reside in the Congress, you know, and in the Senate. You think of the great political figures from the 19th century, and they tend to be senators, you know, at a time when you mm -hmm. probably, the average person have a hard time even naming the presidents. You had the great senator, you know, the, the Webster, Daniel Webster and Henry Clay and, you know, Calhoun, the mm -hmm. great triumvirate, you know, of power brokers in the U.S. Senate. But ever since World War II, you know, the, the rise of this imperial presidency. And we, we can like, you know, skipping stones across water. We can go from, you know, Lyndon Johnson and the Gulf of Tonkin resolution in 1965, mm -hmm. which authorized a war based on a on a pretense, you know, um, all, up to George W. Bush and the weapons of mass destruction, you know, uh, in, in Iraq, uh, what the 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 you know, the, the betrayal of, of public trust, you know, that, that got us into that war. You know, uh, Richard uh, Nixon's use of executive, uh, you know, power and privilege, you know, the very phrase executive privilege becomes almost a, a mantra in the Nixon years to defend all kinds of chicanery and law breaking and, uh, you know, literal break-ins and burglaries, as we know, you know, from Watergate when all of that was finally revealed. Um, you know, we... We're talking about just, you know, the Iran-Contra affair in the 80s, you know, when Congress mm -hmm. had uh, strictly uh, prohibited, you know, the use of federal funds to support anti-communist activities sent, you know, in um, in uh, 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 Nicaragua that, you know, the the the, the uh, uh, enterprise led by Oliver North, you know, to sell weapons to Iran and take the proceeds to fund the Contras in Nicaragua to bring down the Sandinista government who Ronald Reagan, you know, uh, compared the Contras to our founding fathers, you know, and that kind of stuff. Yep. But doing this all behind the scenes and direct contravention of, of the Congressional Act. Uh, and then later, those who were implicated in that criminally, you know, being pardoned. Um, in the uh, administration of the first George Bush uh, by a young attorney general, you know, who weighed in on their behalf, uh, William Barr, you know, who, uh, recently. Luckily, he never showed up again, right? Oh, my God. You know, talk about tr you know, comedy, first time, comedy, second time, you know, or farce, second time tragedy, you know, or whatever is, is that these guys do get recycled and it yeah. seems to get worse you know, uh, let me let me just finish my point here in this uh, piece, because I really loved what, you know, how you set up that whole sort of uh, story of, of Louis Napoleon. You know, as American historians always come back to the election of 1800, because that was the mm -hmm. first time under our constitutional system that an opposition candidate would defeat an incumbent to become president. And that was Thomas Jefferson defeated his friend, John Adams, who was a Federalist, and what were the nominal political parties of that day, Jefferson, uh, a Jeffersonian Republican, defeats the incumbent Adams 
after one term, Adams was president, uh, defeats him in 1800. And there had been a bitter, bitter uh, political campaign. I mean, the, the politics of the time, you know, really, as much as we like to think that Trump has broken every precedent, uh, you go back to the that, that political season of the late 1790s, you know, uh, it was happening in the context of the French Revolution and the, the coming to power of the first Napoleon, for example. Mm -hmm. and, and it split Americans right down the middle, those who supported, you know, the French uh, Revolution, at least in its early years. Uh, and, and those who didn't like the Federalists, the more, you know, sort of conservative uh, interests. Well, you know, it got so bad politically, you know, just in terms of the vitriol and the haranguing, the public, um, you know, sort of, you know, uh, you know, mud throwing, mud slinging, you know, is that uh, the uh, Congress passed the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798 under John Adams, made it illegal to oppose any measure of the government of the United States. That is to publicly oppose any measure of the government of the United States and to publish false, scandalous and malicious writing against the government. Hmm. Uh, and some editors were, were arrested under the terms of the Alien and Sedition Acts. If, the alien part meant that if you were an immigrant to this country, you couldn't criticize the government. Sedition meant that if you were a, a newspaper editor, for example, and you criticized the policies of the Adams administration, you could be put in prison. Uh, so this had real consequences. So Jefferson's, and, and, and as I say, the mudslinging was unreal. You know, the, the Jeffersonians referred in print to John Adams as old, querulous, blind, bald, and toothless <laughs> John Adams, you know. And the anti-Jefferson faction published things about Jefferson's, uh, uh, you know, reputed fatherhood of children with his slave, uh, enslaved woman, uh, Sally Hemings, which you know turns out was true, but mm -hmm. it was it was pure scandal, you know, to to publicly address this in the newspapers of the day. Well, all right, so Jefferson wins the election, and in the famous inaugural, what some have called the kind of uh, you know kind of peaceful revolution, because it would be the first time now there was this sort of pregnant pause. You know, could an incumbent party? voluntarily relinquish power. Now that that's something we've we've sort of taken for granted, right? Over over, right. over the years. But it was revolutionary because typically in history, Josh, what would happen? Somebody got all the power, what would they do with it? Hold on. I mean, and that's the Louis Napoleon story, right? Because yes. he was serving as president under a constitution that had been created when, you know, basically a day before he became president, right? <laughs> that there was no there had never been a, a transfer of power under that constitution because the constitution was was brand spanking new. Um, and that's, you're right. That's the dangerous moment in, in any political system is yeah. I make this point in, in my world history class about, about empires. And that moment of succession is always the point where everything kind of balances on the edge of, of falling apart. How do you go from that first generation to the second generation? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, particularly when it happens, not by election, but, but by one ruler dying and then having to figure out who's going to succeed him. Um, it's always the point where, where you have the greatest threat of, of chaos and disorder and, and failure. That's right. And history is just littered with such examples, right? So, mm -hmm. okay, so Jefferson comes into power and he delivers his address to Congress, what we call the, you know, uh, or to the nation, the, what we call the inaugural address, you know, which was basically a, a statement that was read to the Congress in those days. Uh, and it's a famous speech, you know, and I, I certainly have my issues, as you know, with Thomas Jefferson. Um, 
and and the mythology of, of Jefferson. But there's no arguing this guy could put a pen to paper, you know. I mean, as a uh, as a writer of of political ideas, you know, few have have um, you know surpassed Jefferson. And he comes in with this this inaugural. He says. Uh, but every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. We have called by different names brethren of the same principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. If there be any among us who would wish to dissolve this union or to change its Republican form, let them stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated, where reason is left free to combat it. So that's the famous Jefferson, you know, standing up for the system of, you know, of the Republic of representative electoral government in which the people choose and, and the, and the torch gets passed as John Kennedy would say, you know, uh, because in a system that is free and open, we can, we can disagree, we can fight in, in all these things, but ultimately, what historians call the loyal opposition that emerges from, you know, Jefferson's concept that when your side loses, you suck it up, right? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you and I are San Francisco giant fans. We had to suck it up for a long time, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, now that we're back in our more accustomed place, you know, we, we watched the, the rival Dodgers, you know, uh, listen, you know, we don't do away with Major League Baseball. You know, we, we, we say get, no, them, get them next year. Right. Yeah. Uh, put cardboard fans in the seats, whatever it takes. But, <laughs> you know, but but here's the thing. And, and so many historians of my generation and historians uh, from whom, you know, I learned uh, the uh, craft, you know, who wrote about these things, uh, American colonial history, the great historians, you know, of my era, um, you know, have always cited this, you know, as sort of the ultimate, you know, reminder that see the system, you know, is has built in this tolerance, you know, for opposition and for and for exchanging power. And Jefferson's soaring words there are, are a reminder of that. But, you know, I guess what I'm here to say today, my friend, is that I'm not so sure. <laughs> I'm not so sure that the idea of the loyal opposition any longer in the age of the imperial presidency where the stakes of power are even, you know, exponentially higher than they were in Jefferson's day, um, that this idea of a loyal opposition that we can so blithely, uh, you know, count on. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it gets back to that I, the, the idea of the norms and what the norms are. I mean, the reason, I mean, first of all, that Jefferson quote is, is beautiful and all that, but he won the election, right? So the, you, it, that's why he would say something like that. <laughs> He's <but>, magnanimous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, once the norm is established, then it becomes easier to for, for the opposition to realize that even if they lose, that they're going to have another chance. Uh, but it just takes one time for somebody to not accept that, for the whole system to to come tumbling down, right? And, if, yes. If increasingly, yes. right? And it happened so, in 1861. I mean, by the yes. time Lincoln was inaugurated, okay, uh, in, you know, April, I think it was, of 61 then, uh, think if we had to wait until April, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, that um, something like six states had already declared themselves seceded from the Union. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so we we always forget that for some reason, you know, again, in our, 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 our zeal to romanticize the Civil War. But but there is precedent for this. I've, I've read recently why, you know, what Trump's doing is unprecedented. Well, only in a narrow technical sense, because he he is in power. Uh, it was the opposition party who lost the election in 1860 that then tore up the Constitution and declared themselves to be no longer, uh, you know, part of the country. But is that isn't that sort of an academic distinction at this point? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the, the, again, this goes back to, you know, this idea of what's a coup and what's not a coup is that, you know, we sometimes get so caught up in these in defining these terms and trying to use them precisely that we're just missing the actual story that's playing out in front of us. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think we at this point in points of crisis, you don't want to get caught up in is this definition right? Is this description the, the perfect way of describing it? Um, is this distinction necessary or not necessary? You got to just see what, what's happening and react to what's happening, um, irregardless of, of what we call it or what we how we describe it. So look, uh, can you get together tomorrow? And Brad, we just want the truth. It's simple. Well, that's uh, that's a relief, isn't it, Josh, to know that, uh, you know, at long last, all that uh, Donald Trump really wants is is for honesty to win the day. I mean, I think that's a quality that's most associated with him, right? <laughs> it reminds me of that old tautology. If, if you know, so-and-so is a liar and everything that uh, he says is a lie, then is he really a liar? You know, in other words, if he, uh, well, anyway, right. never mind. It gets confusing. <laughs> uh, can a liar tell the truth? Uh, I don't know. Um, yeah. You know, in, in all seriousness, I, I think, you know, we're not so much laughing at Donald Trump as, as you know, trying to suggest that this, this arc, you know, this long arc of history from, um, you know, tragedy to farce or something, uh, has real consequences, and I and I, I God, I, I mm -hmm. you know, again, I'm pretty, I'd say I'm pretty upbeat dude most of the time, you know, but um, we're sort of like, you know, uh, we're, we're the guys that run, we're like coroners, aren't we? We're, we run the morgue and we we study the dead, <laughs> you know, and and so after a while, everything you know gets filtered through, you know, the uh, you know, uh, I guess the tragedies of the past or something, and I was thinking of that. In terms of, of you know the 20th century, the early 20th century, and and the, and the great poem by Yeats uh, called "The Second Coming," you know, and it, and it sort of struck me because of mm -hmm. this idea of, of 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 the of the Marx quote and and sort of what seems familiar about some of these things that are built into these systems of ours, you know, that uh, it's too dangerous for us to to laugh them off and to say, well, gee, you know, that's a a, a scary bit of political theater, but don't worry, it'll pass or something. You know, there there was Yeats sitting on the eve of World War One, right? Um, uh, writing this this poem of dark foreboding, uh, turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction. 
while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Uh, tell me I'm just overreacting, please. <laughs> no, I love that. Uh, when's that from again? Uh, that's Yates, uh, The Second Coming, I want to say. I'll look up the year. Let me Google the year. All right. That's, yeah, that's yeah. It's so good. Yeah, well, so will the center hold? You tell me. I mean, this is this is that old that old thing we've talked about for for a long time now. That you know, what even is is the center? It's that old joke that I've referenced before that used to tell about uh, you know going on on Nightline. The panel is on the right, George Will, and on the left, Sam Donaldson. <laughs> right. So where's the center in that? In that, um, will the center hold? I I just don't know. I, I again, it's so hard to even identify what that is and 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 what it would mean for it to hold. And you know, I'll go back to what I was saying earlier that it's possible that we come out of this and things can look the same in the sense that we, our institutions are there, but just, they don't quite operate like they, they, they used to, they don't function the way they used to. They don't uh, hold the same meaning as they used to. And, and, and certainly, you know, we are not people on this, on this podcast or in our own lives who, who are tied to the system as it is. Um, but as, as easy it is to imagine something better than the system we've created and lived under, um, it's also easy to imagine something much worse than than the system uh, that we that we that we live under now. Um, and so, you know, without being too loyal to uh, the flawed democracy or the the absence of democracy that's existed across uh, you know American history, it can certainly certainly get get worse than this. Even if by appearances a lot of stuff still looks the same, um, this is something you know you, you've heard you know a lot of people who have. Uh, lived under despotism, lived under, um, you know, some kind of authoritarian rules that, you know, you don't necessarily notice right away that it's happening. You can still go to the store. The, the, the store is still lined with with goods. Uh, you can still go to school and go to your job. But but just kind of slowly but surely, uh, you see this erosion of, of things you used to take for granted. And um, so I, I think it's possible that we can continue to live under the illusion that things are are the same or similar to how things are uh, used to be even as they slowly but surely uh, get worse. And, you know, again, just as a reminder that Louis Napoleon failed twice uh, before his successful coup in, in 1851. Um, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini, no, Khomeini uh, you know, there was a brief insurrection in 1963 before he was successful in 1979. There's, there's plenty of examples of, you know, failed coups, failed takeovers uh, that just need time to, to kind of germinate and grow and, and, and wait for the right moment before they were successful. And so, you know, whether or not the center holds at this moment, um, there's no reason to assume the center will always hold, uh, regardless of what happens in the next few days or few weeks. And I would hate to, to just, you know, leave it all with, you know, some kind of fa fatalism or something. <laughs> By the way, Yates, I, I did yeah, a quick no, check. Right? He, he uh, he wasn't writing it on the eve. He was writing it in as as the embers, you know, of of the war were still fiery hot in 1919. So okay, that's that's what struck me as this has to be post war. Yeah. Post war. Well, I mean, you get I mean, you get a lot of that is, though, right? You know, in that that immediate time period, you know, this sort of questioning of the you know the the. Uh, well, now we're just going off, but you know the, you know the sort of unreasoning mm. optimism of of the the fin de siècle, you know the the 19th century, and and uh, yeah. Well, you know whatever happens to optimism, you know when it, when it gets put through the crucible of a war, is you know you get you get Yeats's poem there in 1919, and and of course, 
you know, what, what we know now, of course, was already incubating, you know, for an even bigger, more destructive version uh, in the redo of World War II. Uh, but I, I, with all that said, I mean, I, I don't, it's, it's a wonder that we can even call ourselves optimists to, to hear us talk of it. Because <laughs> it's getting harder. I think where the optimism comes in, you know, is, is, in, the, is in, the, in the promise of engagement. You know, the thing that bothers us as we share mm -hmm. these ideas and, and with our listeners, too, isn't so much that, you know, the system generates a Donald Trump or, you know, the system generates an Iran-Contra scandal or an imperial presidency or, you know, any, any of these sort of, uh, you know, fractures, you know, uh, but that, you know, th th that's to be expected in some basic way. If men were angels, government wouldn't be necessary, right? You know, but that rather... You know the engagement, uh, the 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 response, the the vigilance, the the honesty, the reckoning. You know the calling things by their true names, as as opposed to sort of, mm -hmm. you know, standing behind the you know the curtain of mythology. You know, uh, or the pl the complacency. You know that somehow the machine goes by itself. Um, you know, so what we're really calling for is, you know, is engagement. You know, and and not uh, passivity. You know, in the face, not even uh, on behalf of snark or condescension. You know, or or a kind of uh, derisive laughter at the you know at the chicanery. You know, or something. You know, of of Rudy Giuliani's you know melting uh, you know, hairpiece or something. Because God <laughs> knows yeah. there is that kind of low theater. But uh, you know, to 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 stay in the game. Right to 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 speak out yeah. and, and even better yet, as Marx would have said, to take action, you know, uh, where action mm -hmm. can be taken. And so uh, that's where, for me, uh, my friend, you know, the the uh, you know the optimism uh, lies is that in the knowledge that that we can speak out and we can take action. Love it. This has been History Against the Grain, episode thirty-three, and we will talk to you again soon. It's a sin when you play into ignorance Another one closing your eyes again So you don't have to see what's happening Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see on TV Stop stuck in a cycle, so we repeat Stop stuck in a cycle, so we repeat